0: Alright, let's 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 bow our heads and pray and then we'll send the kids out for their Sunday school and we'll continue with ours. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being with us today. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we can all come together and, and see each other again, Lord, even, um, even if we can just uh, shake hands quickly and just smile and ask how you're doing and, and all of that, Lord. We thank you for the fellowship that you're granting us. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing your praises this morning. Sing about the the day when we're going to see you again. Lord, may that happen soon, please. Lord, will you please bless this service um, and bless the teachers, Lord, that's going to teach the the kids this morning. And we ask that you'll please um, help us all and speak to us all in our hearts today that we may know you better and love you better and serve you better in this life. We praise your name for being with us, Lord. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Alright, the kids are welcome to be dismissed uh, to their classes and the rest of us. We can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 so long. 1 Timothy chapter (coughs) 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and today we're going to continue our study of this of this epistle um, as we've been doing now for months on end. And I, I don't know about you, I've, I've really been enjoying this so much and, and I, I almost want to say even more so this past week. Um, it's sometimes difficult to put these lessons or the sermons together, you know. You, you've got everything in your mind, sort of what you want to say and, and what you want to go through, but then to order, order it, gets hard and, and, and to string it together so that it actually makes sense to somebody else, uh, that's, that's difficult for me. So I hope today makes sense and that it, it would be a blessing to you as well um, as it has been to me. Now I'd like to briefly remind you about the context that we find ourselves in here in First Timothy chapter 3. Now you will remember we came down to uh, verse 17 last time and Peter is giving us some great instructions on how to live a godly life when you're going through some suffering, and especially unjust suffering. Uh, meaning that you suffer because, uh, not because you've done anything wrong, you know, that's, that'll be just suffering. Is when you, when you go through some sort of suffering or you're being punished because you did some sort of crime or maybe some sort of sin. And that is fair, right? That, that, that is something to be expected, the Bible says, is, is when, you, when you've committed a crime or committed some sort of sin that you should get punished. And that is right, and that is good, um, and that's nothing to be proud of. You know, in fact, it is. You should expect it when you're guilty, and then you should be willing to take it when it comes your way because you deserved it. But on the other hand, when you suffer unjustly, that means that you are being targeted and persecuted, not because you did anything wrong, but in fact you've been doing things right and you've been doing good things. Sometimes it is just because of the fact that you believe in Christ and you stand on his word that that is enough for people to actually start to persecute you. And that is when you're being persecuted unjustly. And that's some, So Peter is giving us instruction on how we should conduct ourselves and what we should expect and how we should behave um, during these events. And so as believers, we should be focused on doing what is good and what is right. And we've spoken about this before, you know. Um, back in the end of chapter 2, you can just turn there quickly. Chapter 2, uh, when Peter spoke to servants, there in verse 19, he said, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So God is pleased with, with people when they are going through suffering, uh, not because they deserved it, but in fact they, when they don't deserve it, and when they do it and they do it in, in a good way, because that gives you an opportunity to be a shining light uh, of the grace of God before those people that are making you suffer in that way. And when you go through that unjust suffering in a godly way, well, then you become a great witness to the gospel um, of Jesus Christ. And you may actually, in the end, lead somebody to Christ because of it, because of your testimony throughout all of that. Now, I think I mentioned this last time, I, I'm not sure, but this is a theme that runs throughout this entire epistle. You know? And we ended off last time, like I said, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, where Peter writes the following, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Sounds a lot, lot like what we just read there in, in chapter 2, right? And what I love about what Peter did here and in chapter 2 is that he, he always ties the point of suffering back to the Lord Jesus and the suffering that he went through. Um, sorry, just turn back to chapter 2 again. Look at verse 21 where it continues where we, we stopped just now. He says, For even here unto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that that you should follow his steps. Jesus left us an example of what it looks like to suffer for doing the right thing, to suffer unjustly. And so we can look at him to always know what the right way is to go throughout all of these things. He said there in in chapter 4 verse 1, Read that with me. He says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh, in the flesh hath ceased from sin. All oh, that. Yeah, well, it ties up the tongue. <laughs> All right. But again, we will suffer. There will come a time where you will suffer. And... Um, that you will be partaking in, those, in the suffering of Christ. And then, like Peter says, then you should arm yourself with that same mind of Christ. Uh, he continues there in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. So don't think it's strange when you go through all of these difficulties. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So he says we should be glad when we are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom whom, whom am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And so over and over again, when this theme comes up of suffering unjustly, it ends up by looking at Christ as our example. He should be our focus in everything that we do. Whether we're suffering or not, He should be our focus in everything we do and everything we go through. Always. And not only that, but folks, there's a ton of things that we can learn from the life of Christ. And I think that's part of the point of what Peter is making here is we can look at everything that Jesus did. We can learn from it, and that can help us go through this life. So you'll do well to when you read the gospels and read through the Bible to pick up on those lessons um, to see to see how we should act. But now let's read our passage for today, starting in first Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. First Peter three verse eighteen. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a lot of stuff. You know, and, and it can sometimes get hard to follow when somebody jumps from one thought to another and then another like, like Peter does here. He starts off by talking about how Jesus suffered, how he died and how he was resurrected. And then he talks about how Jesus went to preach to the spirits who, who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And then he says something about baptism. And then lastly, he comes back there in verse, in verse 22 and he talks about the ascension of Jesus when he, when he ascended to heaven. Now don't worry, okay, we'll go through these things bit by bit um, as, as time allows to make sure that we understand and that we follow everything that Peter is saying here as best as we can. But the main thought that he wants to bring across here is that Jesus suffered and he died unjustly for sins. He didn't deserve it. He didn't. I don't know if you noticed it while, while we were reading from verse 18 to 22 that, that Peter is also pointing out that even though Jesus suffered and he died unjustly, he was still victorious through it all <laughs> because he rose again from the dead and he went and he sat on the right hand of God. He says there in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. That's the position of power. And all of his enemies are made subject to him. Even those demons that that played a part in in him suffering in the way that he suffered. Even them, they are subject to him. That's the point of this entire passage. Is Jesus won? He won. He's victorious. He suffered and he died in the flesh. But his spirit was still alive as he says there in verse 18. And so as his lifeless body hung there on the cross, he already went to the spirits in prison and proclaimed his victory over them. <laughs> he won. He was entirely victorious and and that should give every believer that is going through some sort of unjust suffering a lot of hope and a lot of confidence knowing that in the midst of that suffering God is still victorious. That's 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 what Peter's trying to bring across here. And remember that through Christ isn't that Romans 8 through Christ we are more than conquerors, aren't we? Because he already won it all. And so let's start here in verse 18 today. And I think that's the only verse we're going to look at today, to be honest, Um, just for time's sake. But verse 18, he says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel, that Christ who is the holy and just one, the one who never did or said anything sinful, and even more than that, if you think about it, he never even thought any sinful thoughts. He was completely just. He was completely innocent. He was completely righteous. And he suffered for our sins up to the point of death, paying the ultimate price on our behalf, the just for the unjust, as he says there. Now, I'd like to start to pick this verse apart, starting from the beginning, of course, uh, where Peter writes, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, that's verse 18. He suffered only once. You see that there? Christ also hath once suffered for sins. He will never suffer for sins again, ever. I think we get that. I think we understand it. But to really understand the significance of the statement, we need to sort of teleport ourselves back to how things worked under the old covenant we need to be reminded of that because back then the jews had to continually bring sacrifices you know to atone for their sins there's a sacrifice for this type of sin and for that type of sin and then then there was this big sacrifice on the day of atonement that was brought that um, was supposed to cover all the rest of the sins I read during my study for this that during the Passover time, about 250,000 lambs were slaughtered as sacrifices. That's a lot, folks. I don't know if you've ever seen 250,000 lambs. I have never. I don't think I have. And then the next year, they will do it all over again. They will slaughter them again. And because the blood of those animals could never completely take away any of those sins, they had to continually keep on sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. It just just couldn't work. And now after years and years of these sacrifices and millions and millions of animals dying as sacrifices, Christ comes and he dies only once. Only once. And that was enough for everybody of all time. Only once. Now, back in the book of Exodus, we read how God first gave Moses instructions on how the tabernacle should be built. I don't know if you remember that. And he told him in the finest detail, you know, uh, what every part should be, how big it should be, what it should look like, of what material it should be made of, how it should fit together, all of that. And it's, it's quite interesting reading, um, if you don't mind me saying. I, I know some people get bored by that, but I, I get stuck in that because I try to fit the whole thing in my mind, and <laughs> see where this goes in and where that goes in. But the shape or or, or the layout of this tabernacle that they they had to build was similar to what you would find in heaven. There's something up in heaven, a heavenly tabernacle, that has the same layout. Um, And I I tried to draw it here for you. Um, As you know, Brother Garrett is the one that normally operates this whiteboard, and I thought, let me me try this. And so this is not a scale drawing. Okay. But this basically gives you an idea of the layout of the tabernacle and also of the temple that, that was later built by Solomon and so on. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go through that now. But, oh yeah, I, did, I don't want to explain all the pieces for those of you that are not aware. And I had to write it down because I'm more familiar with the Afrikaans terms. But this is the Altar of Burnt Offering. Okay, That's a grid, <laughs> okay. as you can see there. That, it looks like a braai. And then we've got a, the bronze labour. We've got the table of showbread. And we've got the, the golden lampstand with the seven lamps. Then we've got the altar of incense. And right here, I, I hope you can see this, this thick line here is the veil. Because this, this area here, or let me rather say this big block here, was a tent. This is the outside. This is a courtyard. And then this part of the tent was called the holy place. This part of the tent, uh, uh, past the veil, was called the the most holy place. All right, And in here you find the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, as we know it. Now, we find, like I said, the Temple of Solomon was, was also built according to this layout, because that, that's the way that that uh, God wanted it. Now, of course, they used different materials because, well, the tabernacle was built so that it could be dismantled and that it can be moved to another location in the wilderness and then be set up again, stand there for a while, be dismantled, and move on. The temple obviously didn't need that feature, so they could use rocks or stone and so on to build the temple. But, like I said, somewhere in heaven, there's a layout like this. Now, only the high priest was allowed to go in here, the most holy place. Only the high priest. The priests, the other priests would do their service in here, but the high priest was the only one that could go in, in there once a year. <laughs> he could go in there once a year only, uh, and that's on the Day of Atonement. And when he went in there, he had to bring a sin offering for both himself and his, his house, or his family and, and, and relatives and so on, and also then for the children of Israel. Now, I'd like for us to look at that offering, so you can turn so long to, to Lef- Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus 16, uh, and w- I'd like for us to look at the, the offerings that he had to bring yearly to, um, to the most holy place uh, on the day of atonement. Now, we re- we'll read about three things here as you find that, which is first how he needed, like I said, how he needed to atone for himself, and for his family. And then we'll read about how he had to make atonement for the people of Israel. And even for the tabernacle. And when I say tabernacle, I'm talking about this whole thing. He had, he had to make atonement for that, even. And then lastly, how the sins were transferred to a live goat. And that the Lord chose and the goat was left in the wilderness. So if you found Leviticus 16, let's read verse 11. Leviticus 16, 11. And Aaron... Now Aaron, just for those that are not, not filled in, he was the first high priest. Okay, so we're, we're getting instructions on what the high priest should do and Aaron was supposed to um, give this to the next high priest and the next one and the next one down the line and so it goes on. So th- these instructions sticked. Verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, a bullock is a bull, which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals. A censer is like a bowl. And he should take it full of burning coals of fire from off the altar of the Lord. So he would take some coals from here, put it in the censer. And, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. So he's got the incense in his hand, and, and the other hand, it seems, he's, he's got the censer, or maybe he walked twice, I'm not sure. But that's, that's what he's got. Verse 13... And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony. That he die not, and I forgot to draw this in here. There's the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony. So this smoke of the incense was supposed to cover all of that. Um, that was verse 14. And he shall take off the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And therefore, um, oh, sorry, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle off the blood with his finger seven times. So on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Um, north is this way, if I remember correctly. I wanted to draw that in, but I'm north of the, of the um, tabernacle here. Verse 15. So you've got an idea now, that's the first sacrifice that he had to bring, was the blood of the bull, and that was for himself and for his his house. Verse 14, oh sorry, 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people. That's the next offering, he brings it for the people of Israel. And bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood um, of the bullock. And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So once again, he takes the blood of the goat, he sprinkles it with his one finger on the mercy seat, and seven times before the mercy seat. Okay, you got that, verse 16. And he shall, take, uh, he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of Israel, and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So why (laughs) did the priest need to make an atonement for the holy place and and for the tabernacle like like we just read there at the end of verse 16? Why did he have to make an atonement for that? Well, it's in the verse. Get this, that the whole tabernacle was stained by the sin, the uncleanness, the sin of the people of Israel. The whole thing. And so if they wanted God to stay with them and to allow them to keep on worshipping him in the way that he requires, an atonement had to, make, uh, had to be made for those sins and the tabernacle had to be cleaned. It had to be cleaned from those sins. That helps us to see what God thinks about sin, doesn't it? He is so holy that even the tent or the building in which he he appears to the high priest, had to be cleansed from any uncleanness and from any sins of the people. And atonement had to be made for it. Uh, That's amazing. Look look at verse 17. He says, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. So what that means is there's only one man in here On the day of atonement when these sacrifices are being made. And that's the high priest. Nobody was allowed within these borders. No one. He's alone. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 17. When he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. Until he come out. And have made an atonement for himself. And for his household. And for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord. And make an atonement for it. Okay, shall make an atonement for that altar. There's actually supposed to be four horns there, and we'll read about that now. And shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it on upon the horns of the altar round about it. So put it on the horns, and he shall sprinkle of the blood upon upon it with his fingers seven times, and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel once again. Even even that needed to be clean. Even the altar needed to be cleaned from, from their uncleanness. Everything gets cleaned from sin on the Day of Atonement. Verse 20. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So he, so he had two goats. He had the one that he killed, and he, he, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat and everywhere else, and now we've got the live goat. Uh, where was I, verse 21, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children, oh sorry, verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, like this, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all, all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So leave the goat there with all the sins on his head for the people. So year after year after year, the, the high priest had to make this atonement for himself, for his house, for the people of Israel, and even for the tabernacle itself. Over and over again, year after year after year. Once a year this happened. And that's, that's besides all the other sacrifices that were brought throughout the year. You know, if you've sinned this way or that way, you have to bring some sort of sacrifice. That's even besides that. So turn to Hebrews chapter 10 quickly. Um, this just goes to show that if this atonement had to be made uh, over and over again, including the rest of those sacrifices that I just mentioned, These sacrifices could obviously not take away the sins of the people, could it? Because they had to keep on bringing those sacrifices again and again and again. It was impossible for it to take it away, and we'll see that here in Hebrews chapter 10. Just wait for everybody to find it. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of, of good things to come... We just read in the law, all right, in, in the book of Leviticus. The law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? That's a good question. Because if those sacrifices were able to take away everybody's sins, why do I need to offer again next year? It, it, it wouldn't make sense. That's the rhetorical question there in verse 2. Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Because if your sins are taken away, your conscience is clear of those sins, there's no need for a sacrifice anymore because you're clean. It didn't work that way. They had to keep on doing that year after year. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Every year they were reminded. You remember what we read about the the live goat and what Aaron had to confess over it? All the iniquities of Israel, all of their sins had to be confessed and it had to be placed on that goat. They were reminded of all their sins every year. Never stopped. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Impossible. Couldn't do it. That's why it had to keep on happening year after year after year. The blood of those animals couldn't do it, you know. It covered people's sins, sure. The blood did cover their sins, couldn't take it away, couldn't do it. But what these sacrifices did do was to show people the seriousness of their sin. And I I hope you, you sort of got a sense of that today, of how serious God takes sin You know, when he he prescribes sacrifices like that or or, um, ceremonies almost like that. Because it's so serious. Because even just covering those sins back then, uh, to, to just cover those sins, an animal had to die. That's how serious it was. So how can it be that Christ only suffered and died once for sins then? If, there, if, if before him, a sacrifice had to be made year after year after year after year, how can it work? Well, we find that answer in Hebrews 7. You're in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to verse. oh, sorry, chapter 7. Hebrews 7. Now, the, the book of Hebrews expands on this a lot more, and I would encourage you to go and look at that um, um, on your own time. We, we just don't have time for that today, but here in chapter 7, um, the writer starts to explain how Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron, which, which uh, immediately makes difference between them. And then, then he explains how all of this ties into this, and he continues, he builds on this in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So please go ahead and read that. We, we even have a, have a class on that in Bible school. Uh, I don't think it's this year, but you should actually be able to find it on our YouTube channel still. Uh, to go through that study if you wanted to. Uh, but it explains a lot more about these things that we're looking at now. But for now, we would like to know how Jesus' death could be enough so that no more sacrifices had to be made um, well, well, after that. So let's read uh, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us, he's talking about Jesus here, who is holy, Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So you see, Jesus, and that's the point here, Jesus is so much better than any other high priest that came before him. So much better. You know, he never needed to make a sacrifice for his own sins because he never had any of his own sins. That's, that's verse 26. He's holy, he's harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's sinless. He was and he is sinless. And so there was only one sacrifice to be made, and that was for the people, because the high priest didn't need to sacrifice for himself anymore. Because as we know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, right? All of us have sinned. And so Jesus made the sacrifice, and he made it once when he offered up himself. And that is why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Because Jesus' sacrifice is so much better than any other sacrifice that was ever made. He, he only needed to sacrifice himself once. Look at verse 24. Oh, sorry, Hebrews 9 verse 24. Hebrews 9.24. He writes there, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. What's that? It's this. This was made with the hands of men. It was not made, uh, well, he didn't enter into that place. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Remember I told you that somewhere in heaven there's a layout like this, it, it, this is a figure of the thing that's up there. It's, it's, it's a, an image or an imprint or a copy or whatever you want to call it. But into heaven itself, he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So when Jesus brought his blood sacrifice, he didn't go into the temple, you know, like the high priest, and through the veil and brought his, his um, sacrifice there. But he entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, whatever you want to call it. He entered into there and brought His sacrifice uh, on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, which is in the presence of God Himself. It's amazing. <laughs> Verse 25. He says, Nor yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. So, he, he didn't, uh, so Jesus doesn't need to offer up Himself over and over again, like the high priest had to kill a goat every year, or or sorry, a bull, every year for his own sins. Didn't have to do that. Verse 26, For then must he often have suffered, since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, in this age that we're in now, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did that once, you know, If Jesus was like any other high priest, like I said just now, he would have had to suffer over and over again and die over and over again um, to make atonement, well, for his own sins maybe and and even for, for our sins. But now as Hebrews tells us, he's not just like any other high priest. He's different. He's so much better. And so he came once. He suffered once for our sins because once was enough was enough. Verse 28 in Hebrews 9. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Only once. He died only once. Folks, it is important to know that Jesus died only once uh, for our sins. It's so important, you know. He is not being sacrificed Again and again and again, you know, like the Roman Catholics teach in their Mass that they're sacrificing him anew every, every week. It doesn't work that way. One time, only once, was all that was necessary. And this also ties in, I think, with the doctrine of eternal security. You know, that doctrine that teaches that if you're saved, God keeps you saved. It's not you that keep you saved. God keeps you saved. You can't lose your salvation. And we go through that in our basic Bible um, study course or the basic discipleship course. So uh, I won't go into details on that now, but I, I wanted to mention this, that there are people that teach that you can actually lose your salvation. Uh, I'm sure you've um, at least come across it. I, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you currently believe that or whatever, but that is something that is being taught. And then they teach that you can lose your salvation, and then when you repent, uh, you can get it back again. Uh, and then you can lose it again, and then you can get it back again. And, and you'll ride this roller coaster of life, or throughout life, you, you know, being lost, then saved, then lost, then saved. Folks, that's not true. It doesn't work that way. Everybody that is given to Jesus by the Father, he, he keeps in his hand. That's what Jesus said. You know, if, you could, you, if you could lose your salvation, which you can't, but if you could then there would have had to be another sacrifice for you to save you again. Does that make sense? There would have had to be another one. So that's a problem. Because there was only one sacrifice to save us. And that's when Jesus died for us. There was only one. That one sacrifice was enough to take away all of your sins. And I'm even talking about your future sins. And, And sometimes people, you know, sort of, frown at that when i say it, it, take, it took away your future sins but think about this when did he die on the cross <laughs> Two thousand years ago <laughs> all right you weren't even born back then your parents or your grandparents they weren't even born back then and then already he made atonement for everybody who would believe on him i just wanted to make that clear jesus saves completely and he, and he did it only once uh, let's go back to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're still in verse 18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And he continues saying, the just for the unjust. We saw in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Um, That Jesus is described as holy, harmless, undefiled, you know, that he's sinless. And that is what Peter means when he calls him just. When he says the just for the unjust. It is just, just another way of referring to Jesus' sinlessness. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on that today. Garrett actually did a great job about this last week. I don't know if you were here or if you had a chance to listen to that sermon. If not, I would encourage you to please go look it up. where he talked about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus made for us. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. Now, I know it sounds weird when I say substitutionary atonement. What it means is he became your substitute. I remember Garrett stood around about here and he said, well, you're standing here and Jesus is here. And what Jesus did is he swapped the two around. He said, I'm taking your place, you take my righteousness. That's what Jesus did for us. He died on our behalf. The just for the unjust. We are the unjust. We are. Because unlike Jesus, we are not sinless. All of us have sinned. You know that. You know that. Every, everybody, every one of us in here have committed countless sins in our lives. Haven't we? That's the truth. You know? and, and with those sins comes a penalty obviously that needs to be paid. You can't just get away with it. Sin, sin God can't just let sin go unpunished. And th- that penalty is an eternity in a lake of fire. An eternity of being conscious while being tormented for all time or well for all eternity. Time is gone by then in those flames. It's terrible. And you see, that's why Jesus willingly came to take our place, because he doesn't want us to go to that place. It wasn't designed for a a human being to go there. It was designed for the devil and his angels. It wasn't designed for us. You know, Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 24, talking about Jesus, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The just for the unjust, that's what he did. The just for an unjust. He traded places with us and took our punishment on himself, and he gave us his righteousness. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. That, this is perfectly summed up, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, which reads, For he that's God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. He made him sin for us, who knew no sin because he was innocent. He never did any sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now, like I said, I won't go into more detail on this, but please, if you, if you can find that sermon, please go and listen to that. But the point here is that He took our place. So that, Peter continues in verse 18, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. That was the only way that we could ever go to God. Ever. That's the only way. Because our sins separated us from God and it made it impossible for us to have access to Him. If you think about this veil, nobody was allowed in here. Only the high priest once a year. Nobody else was allowed in here. It was impossible to go there. The sin brought that separation. That's why the veil was necessary. And you will remember that we read in the Gospels that when Jesus died... That veil was torn from top to bottom. You remember that? That veil, which only the high priest could go into, was torn. And that was a demonstration. It it, it was meant to show us the reality that believers can now have free access to approach the throne of grace, as we read in Hebrews 4, verse 16. We can now boldly come to that throne of grace. You know, while I was studying for this lesson, and I'll finish off with this this morning. Well, we've got some nice rain outside. Uh, maybe we can go on some longer. No, go. Okay, never mind. <laughs> but I, I got to thinking about this, and when I when I looked at you know all of this, and, and I wondered what it looked like when Jesus walked into this heavenly tabernacle to bring his sin offering. Now we read in Exodus 28, verse 33 to 35, that the high priest actually had to have bells all, all around the, the skirt of his robe, you know, the bottom of his robe. There was little bells all, all around there, a pomegranate and then a bell, a pomegranate and a bell. If you remember that, you can go read about that in Exodus 28. He had to have all those bells around him so that the people could hear him while he was performing his service here in the tabernacle, um, even on the Day of Atonement, you know, and so that they know that he's not dead, okay? <laughs> that he didn't die. That, that's what, what it actually says. That was the, por- the purpose for that. Now, I got to thinking about that. If the people were supposed to hear the bells as the high priest was moving through here, I think there had to be absolute silence, like we have in here now. <laughs> absolute silence. Because otherwise you wouldn't be able to hear Those bells. I mean, it it, it would have been impossible. And I think it also makes sense that there would have been silence because this sacrifice that had to be brought on the Day of Atonement was an extremely solemn or a a serious occasion. I think everybody was just standing there in silence. It was so serious uh, on the Day of Atonement that only, like I said, the high priest was allowed within the borders of this tabernacle or the temple. Nobody was even allowed to stand in the courtyard. You couldn't stand there. You could stand there, but not there. Um, That's how serious it was. And so, and this is just my imagination, okay, as I've studied this through. So some of this is based in the Bible, but you won't find all of it in the Bible. But after Jesus died, he went to heaven. We know that. We read that in Hebrews 9, verse 12, that he entered into the holy place um, of, of that heavenly tabernacle, by his own blood, it says there in Hebrews 9 verse 12, not by the blood of bulls and goats like the high priests had to do uh, here on earth. And I think that when he got there, just like on the Day of Atonement, all of heaven was silent. Must have been. Can you, can you just imagine? Jesus just died on the cross. I think all of heaven saw that happening. He goes up to heaven because he needs to bring... He needs to bring his blood there on the mercy seat. I think all of heaven, all of the angels, millions and all of everything that's in heaven was completely silent. And Jesus walked he came into this courtyard however it looks in heaven, but we know it's sort of this layout. He came into the courtyard. He entered into the holy place. He went there through the veil and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat, just like Aaron Aaron was commanded to do. And then, when he was done, he obviously came out through the veil, through the holy place, into the courtyard, and I think as soon as he came here, out of the courtyard, all of heaven just erupted. You know, in joy and in praise of God, of the Lamb of God, that He, the one that was slain for the world, the one that paid everything for all of us, you know, that took the punishment on Him once and for all. It's never necessary to do any of this ever again. I wish I was there to see it. <laughs> I wish I could see that. Now, like I said, um, my imagine plays a little bit into this, but, but I, I think it was some, something similar like that. must have been. I can't wait to find out what actually happened and how it actually was. Folks, there's a lot going into saying, you know, we say so easily, Jesus died for our sins, which is true. There's so much behind that. There's so much. Don't think it's just this, um, oh man, what's the opposite of deep? Shallow. It's not just a shallow statement, saying that um, he died for our sins. It's true, and it's wonderful. It goes so much deeper than that. And uh, there's a lot more to say about this. You know, we didn't even get through verse 18 today. Um, maybe we can do it next time. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, next time I'll try to finish off this this section. But I just love this. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we thank you for bringing the victory. We thank you that you are victorious, Lord, that you died for us on the cross, that you brought your um, sacrifice there in heaven, that you tore, tore the veil in two so that we can have access to you, Lord. Oh, we thank you so much for that. Lord, we, uh, I do want to ask today if there's anybody here that don't know you, that don't know if they are saved, Lord, that you will prick their hearts and, and that they will run to you. just want to say if there is anybody like that, please feel free to come and speak to me. But Lord, please save people and, and will you please help us to dive deeper into your word? And to get more out of it, Lord, so that we can um, get a better appreciation for you and, and for how you think about things and how you design everything, even our own salvation. We praise your name, Lord. please bless this um, fellowship and we ask that you please bless the next service as well and keep on working in our hearts. We praise your name, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.